Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm glad that we are going to have a couple of hours together today. I hope you can enjoy both hours because we're going to have Guide Talk coming up in just a minute. And then my friend and Bible mentor, Jeff Verdorn, will be joining me in the second hour. We're going to be talking about this very day. So it's going to be a wonderful couple of hours. And just like typical Minnesota in April, uh, as you know, uh, for those who live here, it was snowing this morning and now it's kind of bright and sunny and here we are, springtime. So you love it, and I can't wait for more of the sun. It's going to be uh, hopefully a, a nice uh, warm weekend. I'm ready for more outdoor time from an acceptable distance from all my other people on this earth. So I hope you're doing well. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, Guy Talk, and let me know what questions you might have for us today, what issues you would like us to cover. We'll do our very best to uh, do that just for you. 877-933-2484. Be right back. I've been reminding myself of the lyrics from an old hymn in these anxiety-filled days. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, and to know, thus saith the Lord. And if you know the hymn, the refrain is just as important. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him over and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Now, Faith Radio is here to remind us all that our hope is in the Lord. His word is true. His promises haven't changed, and we can find rest in Him. Thank you to the many friends who have faithfully supported this ministry over the years so that we can continue to point to Jesus and hear daily teaching from God's word and learn how to apply those truths in all of life's challenges, connecting faith to life every day. We're grateful for you. We'll talk more about faith and God's faithfulness during our spring share coming April 14th. Thank you for standing with Faith Radio. Welcome back to the show. I don't recognize my buffer music. But anyway, <laughs> welcome to Guide Talk. I've got uh, Pastor Tom Brock, Pastor Tom Parrish, Pastor Justin Jepson, and Dr. Peter Kapsner. He has a Ph.D. Peter can uh, eat a lot in one sitting, has cat-like reflexes, and claims he invented ping pong. That's the group today. Guys, welcome. Good to be with you, Bill. I invented well, ping pong. Welcome. You know, <laughs> Bill, Bill, I asked I, you to somehow burnish you. my resume because I was feeling threatened by a guest you had earlier this week that clearly had a way superior resume to mine. So I, I appreciate you putting those those uh, qualifications out there. I just thought I'd uh, you know add a couple of things just to make it look more impressive, and I think it worked. <laughs> It was great. Perfect. I'm impressed. Yeah. So, gentlemen, uh, welcome. And uh, it sounds like, uh, Pastor Tom Brock, you've got a little quiz for us to get things started today. Well, this is Maundy Thursday. It's the day that Jesus gave the Last Supper, and, of course, the next day tomorrow, Good Friday, he was crucified. So I thought I'd just pick these one, two, three, four guys? How many guys? Oh, three other guys here. Pick their brain to see if they know the answer to some of these questions. What does the word Monday mean? Service. It's the word Monday misspelled. 
Not Monday. Monday, Thursday. Not Monday. It's M-A-U-N-D-Y, Thursday. What's the word? And you guys cannot be looking up anything on your cell phone. You can't do that. Well, I already answered, so you guys go. Now, it's your turn. Anybody anybody know? I said said service. It means service. Is it? No. 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 Anybody? Okay. It's a Latin word, mandatum, which means commandment. And it's called Mondi Commandment Thursday because it's when Jesus gave us the commandment to love one another at the Lord's the Lord's Supper. So there you go, minus one. Okay. Next, well, um, no, hold on. But that yes. it was also that the context of that commandment is in John 13 when he served his disciples by washing their feet. So I've also mm-hmm. heard that the the application of that. I'm just trying to trying to backpedal here a little However, bit. However, so, Justin, the, the word mandatum <laughs> is a <laughs> word. <laughs> okay. Now, okay. next. Okay. Um, what's, what is uh, strange about uh, – uh, how do I put this? What's strange about Palm Sunday regarding the four Gospels? What's kind of strange about it? It's only Matthew it? that has it. Is that right? It's only Matthew? John. No, no. Well, you guys are lost on this one. It's one of the few. It's one of the few events that is recorded in all four of the Gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, so there you go. Okay, let's try another one. When the Jesus rode in on the donkey to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what word was the crowd saying over and over? Hosanna! Hosanna! And what? And what does the word what does the word Hosanna mean? God save us now. Yeah, save us now. Good. Yeah, it, when the pilgrims would come in for various things, they they'd say Hosanna, uh, which means save us now. And so Jesus is writing in. And then let's move to uh, Monday Thursday, which is the Last Supper. Just can you list for me a few things? Uh, the Last Supper, today's Passover, by the way, for the Jews. And the Last Supper was a Passover meal for Jesus and the disciples, but Jesus turned it into the Lord's Supper. And can you just list for me a few similarities between the Old Testament Passover meal and the New Testament Holy Communion meal? Uh, should we go to break? <laughs> you guys, this is not too hard. You guys know this stuff. No. What's the blood? The blood, you know, that yeah, Jesus right. is, is taking the place of the sacrificial lamb. This is the blood of the new covenant and takes away you your sins. And so that, that, that's good. Yep. Anything else? Well, quickly then. <laughs> it, when you had the Passover <laughs> meal as a Jew, and they still do this, they always talked about the covenant God made. And that was the Old Testament covenant between God and Abraham and the Jews. And in the New Testament, Lord's Supper, Jesus talks about this is the blood of the New Covenant. New Covenant, all right. Uh, The old uh, uh, Passover meal talked about slavery in Egypt. The New Covenant, uh, it talks about our slavery to sin. Uh, The old Passover meal talked about being delivered from Egypt. We're delivered from uh, Satan. The blood, of course, is the main thing. The Old Testament blood over the door. So the angel of death passed over uh, the Jews and didn't kill their firstborn. And Jesus is our blood of the Lamb that passes over us, so we won't be condemned. And in the, if you've ever seen a Passover Seder the way the Jews do the Passover, they'll say, uh, 
like let us eat the herbs. And the youngest son says, why are we eating herbs, Father? Because they're bitter herbs, and our service under Pharaoh was bitter. And so there was an interpretation of the elements. Why are we having unleavened bread? Because we had to get out of Egypt quickly, mm-hmm. my son. And, you know, and in the New Testament also, there are, there's an interpretation for the bread, this is my body, and the wine, this is my blood. Okay, almost done here, Bill. Okay. Um, then the other thing is, uh, when was uh, when was Jesus nailed to the cross on Friday? About what time? Uh, well, that was in, early in the morning, mid morning. Nine o'clock. Between nine, nine o'clock in the morning. And when did he o'clock. die? Around three in the afternoon. Yeah, somewhere between 3 and 6 in the afternoon. So Jesus was on the cross for about 6 to 9 hours, which is not a long some time. You know, the crucifixion was a common uh, capital punishment. The, the Romans crucified thousands of people. And sometimes people live for days on the cross. But do you have a guess as to why people think Jesus didn't last more than 9 hours? Because the flogging was so severe. Yeah, that's right. I think that's... Well, that was punishment all in itself. Yeah, yep. Mm -hmm. Okay, and and was it customary for the crucified to carry their own crossbeam before they got crucified, or was that unique to Jesus? It's probably very customary among the Romans. It was customary. It was customary. Yeah. Only two more, Bill. Okay. What was what was the purpose of crucifixion for the Roman leaders? Why did they crucify? Well, called, humiliation? Public and open shame, humiliation, showing, yep. bringing fear for those that, that, there you that go. don't obey. It was to Peter. deter crime. And if you, if you mm-hmm. saw people hanging there, you didn't want to steal from the government or whatever. And then here's the last question. Jesus rose on the third day, but if you count the days, you got he dies on Friday, Saturday, he rises on Sunday. So why do we say he died, he rose on the third day? Should we say he rose on the second day? We will discuss that in hour two. Oh, okay. On today's program. Oh, you will? Right there. Yeah, you we're covering that in hour two. Okay. Yeah, we'll leave Good. it there. Yeah. Good. And I also, Good. I, I also heard, too, that there would be, uh, during the flogging, uh, that they would want to uh, punish them, but not um, kill them. Right. So there would be a the person. Yeah, there would be a person that would uh, uh, supervise. Um, so anyway, they were called the lictor, and mm-hmm. so that's where we get the expression to take a licking. All right, let me take a little Why break. Guide talks underway. We'll be back in just a minute. Guy Talk's happening right now. We've got Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastors Tom Brock and Tom Parrish, and Pastor Justin Jepson. Always glad to have the guys around the virtual table today. And I'm, I apologize, I sort of cut us short, but I did uh, hear that the person who would officiate the flogging would want to make sure that the prisoner didn't die from the flogging. 
Mm-hmm. So they would, uh, the, the lictor would say, it's all right, it's time to stop. And Jesus, of course, made it through all 40 of the lashes. And uh, sometimes they would get through, you know, five or ten, and they'd have to stop. Otherwise, the prisoner would die. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I should say, too, uh, Bill, when we say that Jesus kind of died early and that it was, <clears throat> he was six to nine hours on the cross, and, and why, well, maybe it is because what you said, that the beating was so severe— but that's just a guess on our part. You know, when Jesus was bearing the wrath of God for all the sins of mankind, you know, that could have done it. <laughs> and, uh, right. you know, there's there's mm-hmm. unseen spiritual suffering going on that, you know, is probably the worst of all. And, we're, we're, mm-hmm. you know, when they—and I don't—maybe I, you guys know the answer to this. When the soldier put the spear in Jesus' side and blood and water flowed out separately, I read somewhere that meant that he had a— aortic rupture that his heart burst but i i don't know is that true that's well, that was one of the commentators i don't again, know we're, we're guessing on this stuff so mm-hmm. all right uh, there was a medical professional on tv several years ago tom that said exactly that that mm-hmm. it uh, showed that there had been a rupture and that it was the heart so <laughs> but i don't know much more beyond that okay. one thing i do know that i found interesting in this quiz and about jesus as i had an old bible teacher evangelical guy, and I've got the chart somewhere, I've got to find it, but he said, when you look at the life of Jesus, you see the nation of Israel reduced to one person. And then he began to show the parallels. How many tribes were there in Israel? Twelve. How many apostles did Jesus have? Twelve. How many years Uh they spend in the wilderness? Forty years. How many days did Jesus spend in the wilderness? Forty days. And it's interesting because through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the parallels between Israel and what they were expected to do, and Jesus, and what he did, are astonishing. Mm-hmm. And if I remember, there was something like 30 parallels. It's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And if you if you read in Matthew, where Jesus, as a baby, has to be taken to Egypt, and then out of Egypt I called my Come son, my son. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. there, if, if you look at the original Old Testament verse, they're talking about God bringing his son, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. But it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ, and I think that's why Matthew quotes that verse, that Jesus is the perfect Israel uh, to uh, represent Mm -hmm. the people that failed so bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and along with that is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which, you know, is tonight recognizing that aspect of him refuting the temptation and, and obeying God's will. Um, mm-hmm. versus disobeying that Adam did in the garden. So there's also that mm-hmm. first Adam, last Adam aspect mm-hmm. um, parallel mm-hmm. as well. I think you guys are you're hitting on what is so important about um, reading through. I, I think it's it's difficult, obviously, to read through the entirety of the Scriptures, and, and I know that some people do over the course of a year, but to at least begin to increasingly familiarize yourself with the themes of Scripture, because certainly the writers of Scripture we're quite aware of all of what it is that you're describing. And and the scripture becomes this beautiful, cohesive whole when you when you sort of see all of these themes playing themselves together. And even what you're mentioning about um, the fulfillment of the prophecies in Matthew, and, and even understanding that when Matthew is writing his, his book and describing all of these events in Jesus, he's always referencing Old Testament passages. And it's because he's writing specifically to a Jew, Jewish audience. He's not just trying to write a book about the life of Jesus and get it published in something called the Bible. He is he's actually shaping his message and the stories of Jesus to to make a theological point. And that point is that the Jews, for some pretty understandable reasons, 
rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Um, and yet Matthew went out and said, hang on, we might need to rethink this whole thing. When you look back and you see all of the ways in which Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies in ways that maybe we didn't expect and, and completely missed, let me just lay out the whole case for you. So when you read Matthew, it can sound awkward at times because he's always saying, as it was written, as it was written. And he's always doing these Old Testament references, but he's going to prove the point that Jesus was the perfect and final culmination of all of this prophecy, starting the new people of Israel that would ultimately include the Gentiles as well. Mm-hmm. Peter, to jump mm-hmm. on that, and it's a verse that I don't think we look at often, is in John chapter 5, 39 to 40, Jesus talking to mm-hmm. Pharisees, and he says to them, you search the scriptures, which would be the Old Testament as we know it, because yeah. you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Jesus right there is saying, hey, the Old Testament's all about me, and you've got to look to see it, but it's there, but you still refuse to come Mm -hmm. to me. And, you know, too, Mm -hmm. sometimes the fulfillments are what they call a type and not quite literal. I mean, sometimes Mm -hmm. when you look at what Matthew or, or Luke quotes from the Old Testament and says, see, it's being fulfilled in Christ, you might go, well, wait a minute, like the one about out of Egypt, I called my son. They're talking about the Israelites mm-hmm. back in, you know, 1400 B.C., but but the, the, the truth is, it did refer to the Israelites, but it ultimately referred to the ultimate Israelite, which is Christ. There's a lot of that mm-hmm. in the New Testament. So, uh, yeah. and you know, I wanted to say, too, it, it I highly recommend everybody get what's called the ESV Study Bible, because it has such great footnotes on the bottom of each page to explain the difficult verses. And just every Christian should have a a good, thick Bible commentary or two, and at the very least, get the ESV uh, Study Bible. ESV is Mm -hmm. a very good literal translation of the Old and New Testament into just Mm -hmm. exactly what did it say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, as a writer and someone who— studies history, one of the things that shows me the validity of the scriptures was on this very night, 2,000 years ago, which recorded in Mark 14, 51. Um, you've got the writer saying this, and a young man followed him, that is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, with nothing but a linen cloth around his body, and they, that is, looks like the Roman guards or the Jewish guards, seized him, and he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And I find that interesting. Why is that even in the Bible? Except that Mark, writing this, really gives testimony because he was probably that young man. And -hmm. it's an incredible piece of uh, verse they have in there because as a writer, if I'm writing a novel or I'm writing fiction, I'm not going to put something like that in, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of leaves you hanging up in the air. But this shows me how historically accurate the New Testament is. And, you know, too, along the same lines, when Luke went to put together the Gospel of Luke, he says, O Theophilus, to whom he was writing, you know, I researched this, uh, and here's, here's the story of the life of Christ. And a, a, what is it? A couple times Luke says, and Mary treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. And it, we're not sure, but it sounds like Luke probably talked to Mary. And yeah. how, how did he get all this information about the shepherds on uh, Christmas and, and the angels, etc.? Well, it, it may be, you know, it's possible the Holy Spirit directly revealed it to Luke and he wrote it down. But more probably, Luke said, no, I investigated these things. He probably talked to Mary or, or people that were very close, and that's how he got the material. And stuff like that you're going to miss unless you've got a good Bible commentary. So. Mm. 
I just got back from the break room getting a cup of coffee. What I miss? <laughs> was that boring? <laughs> no. Tom, no. Tom was grilling us with more questions and trivia, so you didn't miss anything. Okay. Yeah. All right. So uh, let me indulge this for just for a second. You take a person like Jeff Bezos, who I think is considered the world's richest man. He's has a wealth of about 130 or 40 billion dollars. Safe to say we don't have the ability to comprehend that kind of wealth. And that's just a human thing. Now we take it to the next level. And is is God just so far beyond our ability to comprehend? And do you think that people who study the scripture find that is one of the things that bothers the readers the most? Because, I mean, a world outside, a mind outside this world created this world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think that's why it's so powerful when we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus and the Incarnation, is that was God stepping into the very history and the time that he created in real time and with real human flesh, you know, and that Jesus is what is what makes God personal, what, what makes theology personal and understandable, and to, to know that that unchanging, unfathomable, almighty, holy creator God um, stepped into human history and became just as we are. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, and I think the reality, too, of even looking at the, the, the language that the Bible was written of the Koine or common Greek was just the common language of the people. And so we see we see God, the God of the universe, going to the most extreme and humble measures to make himself known um, to to his very creation that he that he loved and has sent his sent his son to rescue. So I think that's true on one hand, and I think that's what you know theologians talk about the transcendence of God that He's so above and beyond and far above, beyond our comprehension. But then it also has to be contrasted with the imminence of God that He is He is nearer to us in the very air that we breathe and that we have the very Spirit of Christ and dwelling in us. And so I think those are two beautiful truths of Scripture and of the nature of our God that we always hold in tension um, uh, when we, yeah. But I, at the same time, I do agree. There's there's things that still, in that Deuteronomy 29, 29 category, the mysterious things belong to the Lord that we're not going to understand because His ways aren't our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But at the same time, Paul says that we can have the very mind of Christ because yeah. of His Spirit and dwelling in us. So Yeah, beautifully expressed, both, Justin. The both and. Yeah. yeah, that was beautiful. And we can continue this, but I do need to take a little break, and we will be back um, in a couple of minutes. But if you have a question or an issue, we've got a couple coming in here on the text line, and we will address those when we come back. The number is 877-933-2484. Just uh, text that over. We will ask, I will get your question on the air. We'll take a short break and be right back with Guide Talk in just a minute.
Welcome back to the show. Guide Talk is happening. Good questions coming in. My power panel today is Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastors Tom Parrish, Tom Brock, and Justin Jepson. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for being on the show. Here's a great question from a listener. I was wondering what the guys think of the thief on the cross. I think it is the most simplest form of faith. The thief knew he was a sinner, knew he could do nothing, and knew Jesus was his Savior, and that today he would be with Jesus in paradise. Just curious what their opinion is of the thief. Hmm. Hmm. Well, the thief does say to the other thief who was mocking Christ, this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. We're up here because we deserve it, because we're thieves, but he has done nothing wrong. So, you know, he, the thief didn't know much. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew he the, himself was guilty, and he knew Jesus somehow was going to go to paradise, and he asked to be with him there. Uh, did he totally understand that Jesus was dying on the cross in his place for his sins and that he would rise from the dead? He didn't. But somehow he got saved by the little faith that he had, which uh, hmm. I, I had a lady write me this week whose uh, son died in rebellion and sin, and just, is, is there any hope for him, Pastor? Uh, and I said, well, you never know what somebody does on their last breath, like the thief on the cross. And, and so I tried to say, you know, if he did turn to Christ in his last moments, he's saved. But, but of course, we're not, we're not advocating for that. There's an old saying, he who waits till midnight to repent often dies at 11.30. But, but there are people who do repent at one minute till midnight. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, spiritual uh, awakening but Some of the beautiful words thing. that I see here, Bill, in, in this too, is, is just that thief, he says these words, um, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. And uh, I was reading something from John Piper about this, and, and he was making the comment that uh, the thief had no desire to save face anymore. Uh, he was there laid open before God, no way to hide his guilt, and, and uh, instead of continuing with some sort of self-righteous defense of why he did what he did or why it's unjustified that he's on the cross or distort everything about it, he, he just simply gave it up. And what, what I love about this beautiful expression of the thief on the cross, a, a couple things come to mind. One is that it really does point the way into God's kingdom. That is the consistent invitation all throughout the Gospels. I mean, when Jesus first opens his mouth in the Sermon on the Mount with the very first beatitude, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, or it could be rendered, blessed are those that no longer are trying to put up the self-defenses and, and no longer pretending they have what it takes, because for them, the kingdom of God begins to unfold and, and it opens. And so you see that on one side, this invitation is always to humility and surrender and submission as, as the means into God's kingdom. Uh, but the other part of it is just that God uh, then welcome. I mean, Jesus welcomed him in that spot. It just, it's, it speaks to that God just simply doesn't hold grudges. Uh, it, his great love yeah. that we would all be made whole, uh, even into our dying breath, persists for mm -hmm. us. And and He doesn't. That just that long suffering nature of God, His His willingness to not worry about the fact that this thief may have rejected Him for his whole life, and yet at the very end, when the thief is ready to turn. God welcomes them, and that's another mm -hmm. consistent picture of God that I think is so beautiful. Yeah, I was mentioning spiritual awakening a few moments ago. Spiritual awakening, the Bible claims in John 3, when he talked to Nicodemus and elsewhere, it's not something you and I control. It's not based on who we are or what we do, that unless we are spiritually awakened, says Jesus, we won't even know that we need to repent. We won't even know there's a Savior. And with Nicodemus, he said, it's like the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. Suddenly it's there. 
And think about this thief on the cross. He had a spiritual awakening at the last moment. And he didn't turn mm -hmm. away from it, but he really cried out to Jesus. And I look at my life. How did I come to be a Christian? Well, I grew up in the church, but that didn't mean I knew Jesus. Uh, it was a spiritual awakening in my mid-20s. And I think for all of us, we can say, I don't know exactly how it happened. It wasn't a logical choice when I added up all the facts. Something moved in my heart, and I saw it like, for the first time, and I said yes to Jesus. And, you know, the, when you say he, the thief turned to Christ at his last moment, we mean his very last moment, because in one of the Gospels it said they, the thieves, plural, were railing at Christ while he was on the cross. Yep, and they were later. Then later, so so the thief that turned to Jesus at the last minute had begun by railing against him while they were all on the cross. So he, something in the I don't know what if Jesus talked to him or he just saw something special about Christ, but something happened on the cross between him railing at Christ to him saying, "Remember me in your kingdom." So yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, that's a really important point, Tom. Because I, you know, in Luke's account, you know, where he, the first one says, "Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us." That I mean, he's looking right away for you know the kind of that earthly kingdom expectation that 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 the Jews had of, of the Messiah. And even though Luke writing to you know, I think some will even even a mixed audience of Jew and Gentile, but also the the fact that eternity was what had a had must have been awakened in this other thief because he said remember me when you come into your kingdom you know and jesus said that i mean his kingdom had already was coming but he was recognizing a, a greater dimension and a greater reality than just this life here on earth and he was recognizing a salvation that is greater than just being removed from the cross um but really that his sin could be removed and so i think there's a um, this beautiful picture of hope and comfort that there Jesus is up to his very last dying breath. He's still about seeking and saving those who are lost. And that gives us mm -hmm. great hope that as long as we have breath in our lungs, um, there is hope that today's the day of salvation. Mm -hmm. I've been very blessed to be trained in Kennedy evangelism explosion, four spiritual laws. I mean, down through the list. And I've always tried to witness. And in the early years, I, I did a fair job and a few people came to Christ. Something happened at midway in my ministry. And what I mean by that is once I began to say, Jesus, when you spiritually awaken that person, help me to be there at that moment or to step into that moment. And I'm not kidding you guys. I would wake up at 2 a.m. in the morning and feel like this guy that I had talked to three years ago and I hadn't talked to in three years, I needed to call him. And when I did, he was going through a spiritual uh, revolution in his heart, and I was able them to point him to Jesus. And I think mm -hmm. what we miss oftentimes is that, that that awakening to the Holy Spirit, that awakening to Jesus, is not something you and I control, but it's something we need to learn to take advantage of and be aware of when it happens in other people. And it sure did to this guy on the cross. And, you know, Tom, you're talking about waking up at 2 a.m. This happened to me two nights ago. And this has happened about five times in my lifetime. I'll wake up, and it's just ringing in my head and heart. There really is an eternal hell. Yes. And and when, you know, I think we get so caught up in the little things of life, we forget when people die, they're going to heaven for eternity because of Christ, or they're going to hell for eternity because of, of themselves. But, you know, uh, with all the death going on and all the uh, dire news we're getting with this pandemic, uh, 
wow, we got to just remember there really is an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. Au contraire to that awful John Lennon song, Imagine There's No Heaven, No Hell Below Us. Au contraire, according to the Bible in Christ. Uh, well, but if you look at the mainline, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, just well said, Tom. And I, I've had the, this thought myself driving when I will reminisce on someone that I've known who has passed away, who I knew to be very hostile to the gospel. Now, did they, in their last moment of consciousness, have a repent like the thief on the cross? And I, don't, I don't know that, but I would say, I would guess that they're living apart from the Lord right now, and that thought yeah. horrifies me, because mm-hmm. that's a person mm-hmm. I knew and loved. And to mm-hmm. think that they're in eternal separation from God, it makes me panic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you look at the mainline churches mm-hmm. today. The mainline churches don't talk about heaven and hell anymore. Their message is social justice, it is uh, peace, it is activism, it is tolerance, it is their version of love. But the whole concept of heaven and hell are void in much of mainline Protestantism today. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the result is we're not preparing people for eternity, and therefore we're not really preparing them for the message that Jesus brought. Yep. And when I I tell people, you know, you need to find a good church, I say— there's a real easy way to know to know if you want to go to that church or not. One is you told you pull the pastor aside after he shakes hands and say just say, "Can I ask you just a few questions, pastor?" Number one, do you believe there's a heaven and a hell? You'd be surprised how many Christian pastors don't believe in hell anymore. And do you believe Jesus is the only way of salvation? So just those two questions will scout out whether you want that church or not. But yeah, I just uh, I I have a sister who goes to a church. Uh, United Church of Christ uh, Church, and they teach everybody goes to heaven, there is no hell. So how they how they deal with those scriptures that you know are are read in their pulpits, who knows? But it's it's tragic to me. You know, I always want to address the questions that are coming into the show, and here's one. This one came in from a, a woman, and they she wants to get your opinion on, on why so many Christian men are struggling with porn addiction. And how might the church help them not get into that at all? Do you think it's because many men don't talk so much about their troubles? Even though I hear about it talked on Christian radio, it seems that the problem is still growing. Yeah, I think, you know, Bill, that's such a, a multifaceted question and and such an important one, because I think the statistics are right around 95 to 97 percent of men would admit that at least at some point in their life they've engaged pretty substantially with pornography. And I think sometimes we just don't maybe have a a robust enough understanding of what it does to our mind and our hearts when we engage in something like that. Um, That that verse in the scripture that says that God is the potter and we are the clay, and so make me and mold me, this is what I pray. What that reveals about the human condition is that we are terribly moldable and we are deeply influenced by factors and and stimulus in the environment around us and it really does shape how we see the world and so one place of understanding that i think would be helpful around pornography and and i would recommend uh, a guy by the name of william struthers who wrote a book called wired for intimacy and he's a he's a christian Uh neuroscientist and and you know the book is is not for me in its entirety but one thing that he points out that i think is is really helpful is we underestimate the influence that pornography has in shaping our brain patterns to the point that they can actually track within the brain new neural pathways that get developed in terms of how you process both the men and the women in the world around you 
um, when you engage in pornography. And, and it gets to a point where that becomes the only way you can process the men and the women around you in the world. And um, that process of deadening those neural pathways, those process, the process of being molded by our heavenly potter so that we can actually ex experience freedom from that is something that, at least in the circles in which I've run over the years in church ministries, I think we just simply don't have an understanding so often of how powerful the effects of porn are on the mind and the heart and how repeated engagement creates patterns within us that can take a long time to unwind and a long time for freedom to come. And, and I sympathize with a lot of men who would say, you know, I prayed really hard last night that God would set me free and I don't feel free and, and, and I get that. Um, it's a subject we cover in my sexuality class for a pretty extended period of time about what the free road to freedom looks like. But when the church maybe doesn't have, for understandable reasons, a fullness of understanding, because I certainly didn't until I had to teach this stuff. I was like, oh, my word, I, mm -hmm. I can't believe what's all involved with this. Um, mm -hmm. When there's not the robust understanding of what it does to us, it's really hard to walk towards freedom. So I sympathize with the woman's question. Um, mm -hmm. but it's, there's more to it than just getting an accountability group with other men and talking about the problems that, I mean, mm -hmm. Justin, you obviously are in the realm of spiritual formation quite often, and, and you know, the rigors mm -hmm. uh, of what change requires where we actually can go from slavery to freedom in some of these areas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I really, I strongly empathize with this woman's question. And I mean, I can't help but to imagine who she maybe has in her mind, you know, when she's asking this question and whether this right. is a a, hus a husband or a son or a brother or um, a friend or whatever. But I, you know, I, I do think part of it is that we do, um, and this is true of humanity in general, but I think it is true of men of, of we, we do try to face a battle in isolation and, you know, just to, just to be, you know, really um, vulnerable for a moment, but, you know, back when I was in college and, you know, I'm, I'm a part of that 97, whatever, 98% that did wrestle with this. And I, I remember one of the first times really opening up to a friend of mine who, um, like about this struggle. And there was another third guy there who I, who he was a friend with, but I had never met him before. And, and I just like totally spilled my guts in front of my friend in front of this other that I do know, but also in front of this other guy that I'd never met before. And I, I could tell, I could just see the, the growing look of horror on his face as I was just kind of, you know, uh, just confessing and repenting and saying, I, I, I really need help. And, and then, and then right after that, I'll never forget. He, he looked at me and he said, I've never heard anyone share that before out loud. Mm. And he goes, I, I wrestle with the exact same thing. And I have never told anyone before. And then he said, well, now that you know my deepest, darkest secret, what's your name? <laughs> you know, uh, and let me, and let me tell you, let me tell you what the three of us, we all stood, we, we've all stood in each other's weddings. We have, we have done battle and life together um, for over the last decade. And, um, and, and I think part of that, 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 that path of victory, it, it, you, Peter, you're right. It doesn't happen overnight. And it, it, it does take the cultivation of new rhythms and new habits. And, you know, and I've heard one pastor say it this way, you know, if a stray cat comes to your door and you feed it, um, it's going to come back. Um, and, but if you starve it, then then it's going it's going to be driven away and so the idea is that whatever you feed grows and i think far too often we we are feeding false areas of intimacy because we're wired for intimacy and really the the pornography is is that false path of intimacy we're seeking for the right thing in the wrong place 
And until yeah. we start cultivating that intimacy through the pathways that God has established and we actually taste the real thing, we will begin wanting to starve those pathways of false intimacy and begin feeding the God ordained and kingdom pathways to intimacy. And so it's not enough to just to avoid and stay away from it. It's also about what you're feeding yourself and actually taking true delight and true joy in the pleasures that God has uh, provided for us. All right, gentlemen, I got to take a quick break. Uh, Peter Kapschner, please give the name of that book again. A listener has already texted me wanting to know the name of the book. Yeah, it's called Wired for Intimacy by Dr. William Struthers. Thanks. Well, we'll take a short break and be right back with Guy Talk. Guy Talk. Thanks for joining me today, along with the Power Panel, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Justin Jepson. I think this last uh, comment made in question was uh, opened up a little bit of a, a firestorm. I got some other listeners jumping in and also um, curious as to a comment that came in. Uh, Peter, I'll ask you, because you recommended the book, and the listeners said, is the book just male-focused? There are lots of women who struggle also. When it comes to porn. yeah, that's a re- yeah, that's a really good question. And, and uh, first, in response to just that comment about women struggling, I think it was right around 2014 or 15, as I had been teaching classes on gender and sexuality since about 2007, that it was the first time that I had a number of women begin to raise their hands and say, "Well, hang on just a second, uh, Capsner, as we're talking about pornography here, uh, are you aware of how many women are now struggling with the issue?" And kind of kind of what happened during that time was the pornography industry had so saturated the male market that it couldn't grow its revenue any further. And so it it began to tweak its message ever so slightly so that it could become, at least in its own thinking, more appealing to women as well. And and we saw the numbers skyrocket at that point where I think, I want to say it's north of 70% of women um, are now identifying as being addicted to or regularly engaging with pornography. And so then to the point of the listener's question, the book is a little older uh, in the sense that it's probably going to be addressing more of um, what's happening among men. But more importantly, it's, 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 there's about the first three chapters deal with what happens in the brain when you view or engage with pornography. And that would not be exclusive to the male brain. That would just be to the brain in general. So I, I did mention I, ne- I wouldn't necessarily recommend the entire book, but I think the first three chapters are really helpful and at least seeing wow, there's a lot at stake that goes on. This is not just, you know, something that I might do uh, in, in a hidden evening on a Friday night. It really impacts all of my life just simply by the way I process the world. And, you know, I think the original question, too, was how can I prevent this from becoming a problem for, you know, a child? And uh, I, I'll just say this again. We said this a few weeks ago, but um, I found dad's Playboys and penthouses when I was eight or nine years old, and he had a boxes of them in the garage, and it messed me up. Now yeah. kids yeah. are finding, I mean, that's pretty tame stuff today. Now kids are finding hardcore pornography on their iPhones. And I'll just say it again. If there's a mom and dad listening, and you have not put the parental restrictions on your iPhone, I, I, I said this a few weeks ago, too. I have a friend who looked at his seven-year-old daughter's phone and discovered that she had watched hardcore pornography for three hours. 
Oh and he said, he said to me, I don't think she's perverted or anything, but she's curious about all this stuff. So I just want to say to the parents out there, make sure you can do it. Just find out, put the restrictions on your child's phone so they can't access this stuff. And if you're an adult, I'll say it again, Google the words covenant eyes and get that put on your computer, your iPhone, and it will really restrict the bad stuff. Yeah, Tom, I appreciate you bringing that up because I, I think in the same way that kids are so adept at learning languages, way more so than me uh, at my age, mm -hmm. their brain is so moldable. What that says is how moldable kids' brains and hearts are, uh, even sometimes more so and often more so than adults. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, if you're as a parent listening right now and you're thinking, what can I do? Well, uh, I would first start by embracing the risk that your child may not be cool because it doesn't have the latest gadgets and the latest phones and the latest technology and all of that. Uh, you're going to have to risk maybe some some social ostracization in order to protect them because it is really difficult uh, out there to um, to stop all of this from happening. But uh, children are very susceptible to it. And to the extent that you're able, especially early in lives, to, to go into a protection mode, it's really helpful. Well, the problem is so much of it's done in a hidden state. We do it on the Internet. We do it in the magazines. We do it a variety of ways. The accessibility is at the highest level it has ever been in human history. And part of the problem is the Lord created us to have an attraction to one another. And we all know sexuality is a part of that, but it gets so distorted. And one of the yep. things I began to do with my grandkids is spend time talking to each one of them about their identity in Jesus Christ. Who are you? Why were you created? And what is your purpose? And I think most kids today, even going through our church programs, you know, become adults and they never still understand who they really belong to, that they really belong to Jesus, that they're covered by his shed blood, and that they have a mission, which is to be as ambassadors of the gospel. And as a result, very few of them seem to have the ability to fight back against pornography as an aberration and, and a sinful part of what the Lord intended when he really intended us to have healthy relationships in marriage. And most adults just don't talk to kids about that. I mean, yeah. think about it. How many parents do you know that really sit down and not just have that one talk where you drive in the car for an hour and talk about sexuality, but are continually talking about what the Lord intends in a sexual relationship and what is sex really all about and certainly do it age appropriate. But the more we ignore it, the more room we give the devil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometime I, I was in a group of, we'll say, 12 people, and I asked them, how many of your parents ever talked to you about sex? Out of the 12, as I remember this, I was the only one. God bless my mom who took me aside when I was 11 and told me about the birds and the bees and told me, you wait till you're married to have sex. None of the other, uh, uh, the, the other 11 people, not one, and these are Christian people. Not one of their parents had talked to them about sex. That's ridiculous. we got to talk about sex to our kids. Yeah, it's such a good point, Tom. I, I know I was at a church youth group um, for four weeks in the month of February. It was probably about 150 of the kids. And, and kind of what we talked about over the course of those four weeks is it's not that our kids are not being taught about sex. It's that our teachers about sex tend to be pornography and health classes and school bus rides and all sorts of things that do not yeah. and cannot teach and speak to the wonder and beauty and power and the God intentionality around sexuality. So our kids, we're all being taught about it. The question is, is who yeah. are the teachers? And, and clearly the yeah. teachers are uh, not <laughs> at all helpful in the situation. 
Well, mm-hmm. we're in a society today where, where gender issues at seven and eight years old are being affirmed by psychologists. And doctors are even getting in the mix and starting to provide hormones for change. This is unbelievable that we've run into this. That's how perverted we've become in this culture. Mm-hmm. A great comment from a listener. I'll, I'll end with this. Listener said, I found a lot of healing from pornography by being absolutely real with God and with my brothers, open and mm-hmm. honest. Then pray a dangerous prayer. God, fix me at whatever cost. I okay. don't care how bad it hurts, just fix me. Good word. What a dangerous, mm-hmm. a dangerous prayer, but yeah. a good one. Dangerous. Gentlemen, Love it. yeah, mm-hmm. have a blessed Easter. Thank you so much for uh, doing Guy Talk. I always enjoy this hour. And I hope you guys and your families have a wonderful uh, week and a, and a joyous and happy Easter. You too, Bill. You too, Bill. Thank, Thank you so, so much. much. Yep, you're very welcome. That wraps up Guide Talk. Coming up next, uh, my friend and Bible teacher and mentor, Jeff Redorn, is going to be joining me. We're going to talk about exactly what happened on this day. I think you'll find it absolutely riveting. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.